friends, you've now entered the Man Cave Podcast, unplugged and unfiltered. This is a podcast where the topics are mostly about sports, but sometimes we mix in some other items, like, is Bigfoot real? Who is the best Batman? You're guided through each episode by a man who's the man for his time and place, Dan Casper. So welcome to the Man Cave, and stick around for a while. You're going to like it here. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Man Cave Podcast, brought to you by our good friends from Hy-Vee and Toys and Ford. I'm Dan Casper, your host for every single episode of the Man Cave Podcast. This episode, we're talking a little Bucks. We're talking a little Giannis. We're going to talk some Brewers baseball with Brandon Berg. We're catching up with our own sports doctor, Dr. Crow, Chippewa Valley Orthopedics and Sports Medicine for a little inside the training room. Before we get into it, though, want to do a quick reminder. We don't have it on this uh, Friday's podcast, but going forward, if you listen to last Friday's, Brandon and I did a top five, top 590s TV themes. We're looking for some suggestions. So if you have any suggestions out there for for a top five topic, hit me up on Twitter at D-A-N-K-A-S-P-E-R or at Facebook.com slash Casper Sports. All right, we're looking for them. Anything's on the table. Doesn't have to necessarily be sports related, obviously. So... But uh, let's get things rolling here. We, we, uh, we're going to talk a little Bucks here. So the Bucks picking up another win, sixth straight win, come from behind victory Thursday night against the Clippers. And Giannis dropped another 50-plus game, 50-point-plus uh, game. Uh, it's his third in his last 11 games, 54 points last night. But just like 12, day, or 12 games ago, he only had three 50-point games in his entire regular season career. He's now doubled that because he's had three – games of 50 or more points in his last 11 games. Ridiculous. So he also mentioned he's going to celebrate with uh, with a little Culver's. That's going to be his celebration. So we're having a little fun with this. Where would you go for your little celebration type of meal or for, for whatever reason? All right, hit me up with a text on the Shoe Doctors bullpen line, 715-830-1912. Uh, Facebook.com slash Casper Sports or if you wanted to you can uh, chime in on the uh, on the video stream over there as well. Another uh, 50 plus performance from Giannis himself last night also contributing 19 rebounds 54 points 19 rebounds excuse me there it's choking up a little bit Middleton coming off the bench and being the second leading scorer for the Bucks, 16 points for for him 20 minutes in action, maybe getting a little bit closer and closer to cracking that starting lineup. They've been really easing them in. But, hey, it's working right now, right? Bucks winning six in a row since Middleton has come back. And I guess you could say since Giannis has come back, since he missed uh, some time there too. But uh, since the band was back together, it's working right now, and they're getting it done. Come from behind victory last night, outscoring the Clippers 28-18 to in the fourth quarter. Giannis, uh, we were just talking about it. That was our trivia, I think it was at uh, Tuesday when we did our pop quiz. We all knew that uh, Kareem had the most 50-point games in Bucks history. It was at 10, and now Giannis adds another one, so he's up to 6. I'm fairly confident in saying Giannis is probably going to break that Bucks record of most 50-point games by a player. 
But uh, he said it's a great compliment to be up there with Kareem. Man, I never thought I was going to score 50 in the NBA when I got drafted. It's an insane, crazy dream. Uh, Over his last six games, over his last six games, Giannis has averaged 40.2 points per game and 14 and a half rebounds. During this stretch, this this winning streak here, those are the type of numbers he's been putting up right now. That's insane. That's MVP level insane. He is on fire right now. And for anybody thinking that, you know, call me a homer, call me biased, I don't care. But for anybody thinking that he's still he's not the 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 best player in the world or you know, is it Luca, Joel, still LeBron, whatever, it's my money I will take Giannis any single day of the week. What he can do and 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 nobody can stop him. Nobody can stop him. 54 again last night. That's his third 50-plus game in his last 11 games. Think about that. What an insane run. Uh, Bucks did struggle shooting a three last night. Just 24% from, from three. Nine of 37 overall. Um, so and that was kind of one. And then we mentioned a little bit earlier Drew Holiday, who is now in the All-Star game, uh, selected as a, as a reserve player. But uh, he struggled to open up the game, missing his first several shots. He did finish with 12 points and 8 assists, though. But glad to see Drew Holiday getting the recognition that he absolutely 100% deserves. And I get it when you when you think of players in the NBA, and you ask some of the you know maybe diehard NBA fans or casual fans, and you talk about okay, list me the guards. Who are the top guards in in the NBA? And Drew Holiday is probably not going to be a name that is going to come out of the mouths of NBA fans outside of Bucks fans. It's just it's probably not going to happen. Um, I saw, let me see if I can find it, because it was on Instagram, They where they released, I think it was the, was it the, the player vote, or was it the fan vote? Let me see if I can find it. Um, but it kind of gives you maybe a little bit of a a glimpse to where how some people, yeah, here it is. So this is uh, players. This was the players vote, NBA players, uh, who... They 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 released the votes for uh, for how the NBA players uh, voted for for positions, and this was the guard. So number one, they had Kyrie. Number two was Mitchell Brown from Boston, uh, Demar Derozan from Chicago, James Harden at five, uh, but at ten was Drew Holiday. At ten was Drew Holiday. Trey Young was at twelve, which was kind of most of the the talk like how you know NBA players voting voting Trey Young at at 12 there but you know Drew Holiday coming in at 10 too and it's like that's the players voting that but again I think it's 
you ask a lot of NBA fans, and I think sometimes the players get involved in that too, it's a popularity contest. It's a popularity contest. You think of, and this was just Eastern Conference players. You know, We're not even talking about just the, the Western Conference players. But people know Kyrie. And I'm not trying to diminish the games of like a Kyrie or, or Donovan Mitchell. And Donovan Mitchell has been having an MVP type of year. Brown playing with Boston, obviously. You know, and he was involved in some trade talks this past year, rumors at least. DeMar DeRozan was an MVP candidate in the first half of the season last year. But Drew Holiday is just a, a guy that I call it like a blue collar type of work, goes about his business. And he'll go through a couple cold stretches here and there, like last night. But you look at some of the games, too, that he had while Giannis and Middleton were out dropping back-to-back 30-plus points. We know about his defense. I'm glad he's he's the point guard of my Bucks team. He fits perfectly with the style of Giannis. Absolutely perfect. I love it. And I'm glad he's on this team. And I'm glad he got the recognition that he absolutely deserves to be an all-star this year. When you look at Drew Holiday and, and some of the numbers, is he one of the you know highest scoring players in the league? No, he's 47th in scoring. 19.2 points per game. He's 10th in assists per game, 7.2. Averaging 5.2 rebounds per game. But especially Bucks fans, we all know just how incredibly important he is of, you know, being the 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 lead, the, the, the point guard of this team, being the defensive leader of this team. He's a catalyst on this team. Bucks next game will be coming up uh, as we said Saturday against uh, the Heat, the final home game of this stretch. Then they start a little bit of a West Coast trip next week. Monday, they'll be in Portland. So next week's going to be some late games since they'll be on the West Coast there. But uh, Thursday potentially could be a uh, a record-setting historical night. If you, I mean, just kind of put away your, maybe your personal feelings uh, feelings against LeBron if you're not a fan of him. But uh, there's a there's a chance LeBron could break the scoring record at home against the visiting Milwaukee Bucks on Thursday. There's a chance that that could happen. And how ironic in the story writing itself, breaking Kareem's record. It's the Bucks visiting the Lakers. The two teams that Kareem defeated. LeBron is 63 points away from beating uh, Kareem's record. And if you're looking at uh, the upcoming schedule, the Lakers have the Pelicans coming up tomorrow. So if he, you know, drops a cool 30 plus on there, uh, not even. I mean, you know, he's got two more games before Milwaukee, so going to be at New Orleans unless he drops 60 some points in that game he ain't going to break it then then he's got Oklahoma City at home on Tuesday and then Milwaukee on on Thursday so it looks like there's a decent chance he's going to be able to do it against the Bucks. and you know he ain't going to be sitting out any home games now he, he ain't going to be doing that if he's going to break the record it's going to be at home Los Angeles on that court. 
I mean, it's going to happen either way. You may not want it to happen on, uh, you know, against the Bucks or such, but it's going to happen eventually. I uh, should also mention too that, uh, you know, with with the All Star Game, shout out to Oshkosh native Tyrese Halliburton making it uh, to the All Star Game too from the uh, Indiana Pacers. Pretty cool. I think a lot of people we kind of forget about. Yeah, there's there's a there's a kid from Oshkosh. Who's lighting it up in the NBA right now? Tyrese, 20 points per game, 10 assists per game, number one in the NBA. I mean, he is he's just lighting it up with the Pacers right now. Pretty cool to watch, pretty cool to see. If you remember, he was a uh, first round pick in 2020 by the Kings. Played ball at Iowa State, and yes, I know that's probably a lot of people kind of say, "Well, Badgers missed out on that one there too." Well, yeah, <laughs> they did miss out on that one. Probably would have looked pretty good in uh, the Cardinal red and white there. Speaking of Badger hoops, Badger hoops picking up the W last night, but they really tried to make it hard on themselves, as Greg Gard said after the game. Number one team in the country at making it, uh, making uh, things difficult on themselves. Most uh, difficult on themselves. Again, a cold stretch in the last several minutes of that game. And Ohio State was just kind of creeping back on in. Just creeping in. But the Badgers able to hold it down. And I don't, and it goes back to our, you know, talk that we've had the last couple days. Who's that guy that can stop those cold stretches for the Badgers? Who can be that guy? Can it be Connor? Tyler Wall only had five points last night. He was the only starter to not be in double-figure scoring. Um, Chucky Hepburn saying after the game, I don't even know what else to say to that, talking about the uh, you know number one in the country at making things more difficult on themselves. Uh, to the fans, we're sorry, but at least we're one. We're back on the, the winning track. I don't know. But again, just late struggles in games, closing things out. Their last nine shots. Missed, uh, you know, a little nugget here from, from Masson.com. UW has experienced cold shooting stretches lately. But its late struggles Thursday were out of character in the context of the game. The Badgers didn't miss any more than three straight field goals until they saw their last nine shots go awry. The fifth and sixth consecutive misses in that stretch were particularly cringeworthy. Stephen Crowell missed the rim and hit the bottom of the backboard on a three-point try. Tyler Wall got the offensive rebound but was forced into a desperation heave near the end of the shot clock that also didn't hit the iron. Mm. So I don't know who that guy's going to be. I mean, you can't if they get in the tournament, you can't have these cold stretches for several minutes. You're up in a game, or even if it's a close battle, or maybe you're just a little bit down. You cannot afford to go these stretches like they have been. It's just, no, you won't last long. Uh, Badgers will get a rematch against Northwestern uh, coming up on Sunday. If you're looking at uh, the overall conference, you know, Purdue's kind of the outlier in this whole thing just because they're, 
They're kind of running away. To me, they're the best team in the country right now. But uh, got Illinois, who's three and a half back. Rutgers, three and a half back from from Purdue. Wisconsin, five and a half back from Purdue. And that's the thing. It's like they're two back. Wisconsin's two games back from second place in the Big Ten Conference. It's Purdue, and then it's just everybody else. Everybody else. So you look at this schedule, it wouldn't be that far out to say that the Badgers could actually be in the top half of the Big Ten when when the Big Ten Conference tournament starts. But again, I don't know if I trust them. I don't know if they can take advantage of this, this Big Ten Conference and do that. I don't know what to expect from them every single game. And last night was a perfect example of that. Starting off hot, and it's like, ooh, who's this Badger Hoops team? And then we saw them kind of, you know, do what they've been doing the last few outings, those cold stretches. I don't know what to expect week in or night in and night out whenever it's a Badger Hoops team or Badger Hoops game. I don't know what to expect. So Badgers, they've got uh, Northwestern coming up this weekend. Marquette in a battle for first in the Big East. Got a game against Butler uh, tomorrow. Then UConn next week, Georgetown. And then the day after Valentine's Day, if everything kind of plays out how it is right now in the Big East, that game against Xavier on the on the 15th, that that's going to be a huge game. It's Marquette and Xavier at the top right now in the Big East. Providence is just a game back. Creighton, one and a half back too. You're looking at the, the remaining schedule here for Marquette. They don't have Providence on their schedule anymore. Do have a game against Creighton, and obviously that Xavier one, UConn, is on their schedule too, 24th ranked UConn. UConn was going through that rough stretch there a little bit, so they're four games back in uh, in conference play there. But Marquette has a real shot at winning that Big Ten or Big East. The reviews are in. It's the best thing I have ever tasted in my life. This is the best thing that's happened in my life, even better than my wedding. That's what everyone has to say about Man Cave Light, the official beer of the Dan Casper Show and the Man Cave Podcast. Try it for yourself, and you will know exactly why people say it's like sipping a little bit of heaven. Man Cave Light is available on tap at the bar in High V. You can also grab a crawler or six and take some Man Cave Light home with you. So go try your new favorite beer, Man Cave Light, today, and you will know exactly why one reviewer said, I cried tears of joy every time i have one but we kick off this hour as we usually do every friday morning inside the training room with dr crow chippewa valley orthopedics and sports medicine the man is now on twitter now people too you could follow him on twitter <laughs> at eau claire ortho you did it man a lot of people pumped about that well done there we go i love it man i love it hey we got to start off talking about brock purdy um the the 49ers quarterback as mm-hmm. we saw last Sunday, getting injured early in the game. Now they're they're calling it a, a torn UCL. The, the the question, well, actually, a few questions I had for you on this one. I was reading a little bit that there is a difference, and now that's a potential Tommy John issue there. But is there a difference mm-hmm. between repairing a torn UCL as compared to like a total reconstruction? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, generally, um, that ligament, when it's injured, is fully reconstructed. So we're generally not doing repairs. Um, there are some notable exceptions. Um, if it's torn but not completely, so let's say a grade 2 injury, 
um, there is a device you can put across it where you basically put an anchor on each side and put a, a basically a really strong piece of tape um, across it. And it basically is an internal splint. It's actually, you know, brand name is called in, internal brace. And it holds it there and allows the ligament to heal back in. But it's not a repair in the sense that you'd grab it and like sew the ends back together. Because if it's completely ruptured like that, the, the success rate of a repair is low. So at that point, you're fully reconstructing it with a, the graft. Okay, so they're saying about six months uh, for, for recovery. Does that sound accurate for, for Brock Purdy? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's going to be pretty close. The big thing is, of course, it's his throwing arm, right? So um, I, we've touched on the Tommy John ligament in the past. It's obviously most well-known in baseball. Um, and the mechanics of throwing a baseball um, just put more stress across it. So there are some football players who injure it that don't need it at all. Now, of course, the quarterback is the one position of football that um, has to throw. Uh, so they do put stress across that same ligament. Um, just a quick recap, that's the inner ligament, so the medial or inner part of the elbow, um, and that stabilizes that medial elbow. So it's an important part of the mechanics of throwing. Um, and due to that, the stress that they put on with throwing, they need to have a, a strong ligament there. So um, what they're doing, I'm sure he's getting MRIs. My guess is he may get serial, serial MRIs, so an MRI now and then maybe in a couple of weeks to look at it and see where it's at, because I know they're still talking about quote-unquote um, options, which would really be, are they going to let it ride? Are they going to do one of those internal braces? Or are they going to talk about doing a full reconstruction? My guess is he would not be a full reconstruction based on what they're saying. So my guess is they're either going to try to just rehab it, um, in other words, let it rest and heal, or do that surgery to kind of quote-unquote brace it. So, um, But either way, with, the, with those first two options, without a full reconstruction, I'd say six months he should be back throwing a football is, is a reasonable timeline. So obviously we saw him not able to really do anything when he had to come back in. Uh, into the game and he said uh, or somebody said that he couldn't even throw it five ten yards there is, is that can you kind of maybe explain to us like what was he feeling like did he have numbness do you think in that arm or was it just muscle weakness that he couldn't throw five to ten or over ten yards in, in that game i'm guessing it was a combination yeah so i mean with that ligament being damaged any type of throw is going to put a significant amount of torque at the elbow right and what stabilizes it is the ucl and so without that, he's basically throwing against a torn or partially torn ligament. So number one, significant pain. Often when people injure that, they come into our office complaining of loss of velocity with throws. So they basically just don't have the same power. Part of it's protective. Part of it's just, again, you can't create that same torque. In addition, when people take that hit, if you watch it in slow-mo, which they showed about a thousand times during that game, let's hit that yeah. hit, um, you see that, you see that me- the mechanism of injury on the elbow puts a ton of traction and it's not uncommon to get irritation of the ulnar nerve, or a.k.a. the funny bone. So that runs right next to, you guessed it, the UCL, right on the inner part of your elbow. So when they have that injury, we call the valgus stress on the elbow, it can injure that ligament and then put tension on that nerve. And with that, people can certainly get paresthesias, numbness, even weakness in that hand for a little bit. Um, and so it's possible it was, it was a combination of those those things that led it to where he couldn't throw. Because, I mean, I, 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 I don't think he tried to single pass to mm-hmm. my knowledge after that it was all handoffs and um it was it was just a sad way to see a game end truthfully absolutely how you know we when we hear about these injuries as you mentioned we've talked about it a lot as is pitchers and you know they're not getting hit so i mean how how mm-hmm. rare is it i mean do they it's a, does it do they almost have to hit it in the right spot in that game to, to damage it like they did with brock birdie um, yeah, I mean, it takes a special kind of hit to do it. I mean, you know, throwing has that vulnerable period where the arm is coming through, um, and that's right when you took the hit, right? So um, it's not a super common injury. We don't see it really, really commonly. 
we'll see it in position players as well. It's like a linebacker or safety or a lineman that get their arms caught. Wrestlers, that can happen. I mean, we, we see that, but it just, in those athletes, it doesn't, it heals in and does okay. Um, and so it's not a problem. It's just when you get an athlete that's going to immediately go back to trying to put maximum torque across that ligament where you start to say it's problematic. And truthfully, there's a really big difference between like the general football injuries, which are almost always acute contact injuries, in a whole separate category, which is pitchers, which are usually are attritional tears. So think of it like one fiber at a time, and over t- they're thrown hard, thrown hard, and a couple fibers here, a couple fibers there, and all of a sudden it goes from a, a normal ligament to an incompetent one. Now sometimes they will have a moment where it's the straw that breaks the camel's back, but really it built up to that. So. Um, those are separate entities, and, and it's just, again, it's very different, right? I mean, mm-hmm. baseball players, short of the old uh, Robin Ventura, Nolan Ryan, there's not, not a lot of uh, pitcher contact. So, Right, yeah. Uh, so sticking with football here a little bit, I wanted to talk ask you a question about McCole Hardman. He's a wide receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs, and I was reading a little bit uh, early this morning because Andy Reid yesterday uh, kind of already said that he's not going to be playing in a Super Bowl, but they kept calling it a pelvic inj- injury. And then I saw from the NFL Network is that it's actually a core muscle injury. So when you hear them kind of terming it a pelvic issue, but it's actually a core muscle, would that be almost like a sports hernia or a groin injury, do you think? Yeah, yeah. I think I, from what it sounds like, that's probably what it is. And so, you know, sports hernias um, are a, a topic that's still kind of up for debate, truthfully. But most people think it has to do either with the muscles that attach to the pelvis. Um, some people think it has to do with a, a nerve that traverses through there. But long story short, it sure sounds like that because, you know, part of, you know, your, your abdominal muscles, that's what they insert to, that kind of the pelvic rim in the front of your uh, abdomen. So an injury right there certainly could fall into that category of, of a, a sports hernia or, or quote-unquote core muscle injury. The challenge with those injuries is, I mean, the core, as the name implies, is, you know, the center, right? So you really can't do much of anything without engaging your core. And so when an athlete has a real bad either abdominal or core muscle injury or sports training, whatever term you want to use, and there's some variability with those, it's a very challenging thing to come back from because you can't just tape it up and splint it. It's It's just there. It has to be engaged, and it really tends to be symptomatic. Uh, going back to an elbow injury, but sticking with football, Landon Dickerson from the Eagles, he hyperextended his elbow in the NFC title game, but he sounds like he's going to play in the Super Bowl. Can you, since we're talking about elbows quite a bit here, can you kind of explain like what maybe ligaments or muscle, like what gets hyperextended in that elbow for, for people? Yeah. Yeah, so when, when, when those guys take a hit to the elbow, um, you know, there's normal range of motion that people have. Most people are able to bring their elbow to you know, basically all the way straight. Some people even a little bit beyond straight. When you get a force across it that pushes it beyond, um, you know, that it'll put strain on the ligaments around the elbow. So the, the basically it, most dislocations result in from a hyperextension injury. So basically the elbow hyperextends, it goes beyond a certain point where no longer the joint surfaces are pushing each other and then the joint comes apart altogether. With that comes significant ligament injury. Um, and it's a spectrum. So instability really is. I mean, if you look at a hyperextension injury and you watched it in slow motion on an x-ray, the joint would begin to sublux. So that's kind of the beginning of a dislocation. So hyperextension injuries, whether you're talking elbow, knee, whatever, uh, they can be very symptomatic uh, and they can be quite painful. Often with it, you're going to get a combination of bone bruises because it levers on itself. So the bone is hitting itself and hyperextending beyond where it's supposed to go. Um, so there's pain from that. And then, like you mentioned, there is often injuries to the structures around the elbow. 
it's usually not muscle, not so you couldn't have like a muscle strain with it as well, but generally it's going to be more ligament or capsule-based injuries. So the, the extent of the hyperextension will really dictate how bad the injury is. So if you were like a, you know, a, a millimeter away from dislocation, I mean, you could tear a couple ligaments in the elbow quite easily, and then the elbow doesn't fully dislocate, comes back in, but there was a really significant amount of trauma. Conversely, you can have a mild hyperextension injury where, yeah, you have a bone bruise with it, maybe a, a mild um, sprain to some of the ligaments around the elbow, whether it's, you know, the, the Tommy John on the medial side or the LCL, which is on the outer part. And those guys can miss a play, shake their elbow, and go back out there a little sore, but can participate. So there's really a broad um, spectrum of, of severity with those kind of things. But it really can be – it just depends on the, the angle of it because usually it's not a true straight extension. It'll go one way or the other, and that kind of dictates which ligaments get injured with it. Uh, we had uh, somebody that texted in. They said, hey, Doc, can you just explain why uh, sports injuries or sports hernias are a little bit uh, debatable right now? Yeah, I, I mean, because the, the treatment has been so variable. So, uh, you know, when, when, when we talk about sports hernias, I mean, you know, they were they, probably in the 90s and 2000s is when that topic first started kind of coming up and people were discussing it. Um, I, I, we had this guest lecture when I was in residency, um, uh, and he was, I think he was from the University of Virginia, ironically, where I ended up doing my fellowship, but he was a general surgeon, and they were in the camp, they felt it was more kind of like muscular-based, so it's going to be the, either a combination of the core muscles coming from the top, so you're basically abdominal muscles attaching to the top of the pelvis, and then you have your adductors coming down from the pelvis, so if you were to dissect out the pelvis, when you look at it, you have two tendons coming from each direction. Their thought is it's actually a strain or chronic inflammation of the muscles coming off of there. Um, there's another camp kind of more out of Europe that felt it was more of a, a nerve, and I'm trying to remember which nerve it is, but um, it's basically an irritation of the nerve that runs right in that area as well. Now, the interesting thing is is when people operate in both ways, they both tend to work. So it's like, well, wait a minute, you're treating two different problems. How is it both, you know, creating an improvement? And whether it's you're, you know, rehabbing it, whether it's you're denervating it, whether it's the actual repair of the tendon, we don't really know why they both work. So the answer is we don't have a clear ideology. Whereas, let's say you get an MRI of a torn ACL, you get 10 orthopedic surgeons in a room and we'll all say, look, it's a torn ligament. It's very obvious. You image it by a clear, distinct pathology. Then you start debating what's the actual cause. And when you have different treatments, different outcomes, um, that's where the debate lies. So um, it's certainly something that that we do see. It's, It's not a super, super common injury. Often with some rest, people bounce back from it fairly quickly. It's those challenging ones. Um, you know, you know, through the years, I'm, I think like Donovan McNabb had surgery back in the day on it. I mean, you'll see occasionally athletes have surgery on it, um, and and the success is still pretty good. But I, obviously, that's a much more challenging problem if they have to go to surgery. Yeah, because uh, I think there was was it Greg Jennings? I think back in the day when he was with the Packers had it too. But it, it took like a couple weeks before they like decided to have surgery. Would that kind of fit that where they're trying to figure out the best approach or what exactly what was kind of going on there? Yeah, exactly. Like I said, I mean, there's a number of different things that that um, that can cause these type of problems. So, I mean, it's it's going to be again this kind of issue with with those. Again, the the main thought is it's getting those tendons coming off of the pelvic bones. But like I said, there's been different camps on that, and and the treatments have been uh, effective both ways. So you kind of see the quote unquote experts, and if you have experts saying different things, that's a challenge for any person, right? So mm-hmm. whether you're a lay person or an athlete, when you have multiple opinions, it creates a problem. And, that's one real challenge with these elite athletes is they're often getting multiple opinions. I mean, you'll see that in the news. Like, you know, Kevin Durant hurts his ankle and he's seeing three different surgeons. It's like, you're going to get a little bit of a different story from each person. 
um, and and not not necessarily one's right or wrong. We all have different kind of approaches to problems, um, but it's it's uh, it creates a challenge in, in how do you kind of decide which route to take and whether it's a, a sports hernia or a ruptured ACL or whatever you're talking about. Yeah, because I think I read too that Brock Purdy is going to get like uh, follow ups or a second opinion on what to do with with his uh, injury too. Yeah, not not surprising, especially it's one where you're debating. I mean, that, that's the most common question is is the, really the first thing we ask ourselves is does this need surgery? Because a lot of problems if you operate earlier, it's just going to number one the recovery will be faster because you start the recovery process sooner, and often if you're able to get to things more quickly, you can avoid additional collateral damage. Now, he's not going back out in the field right now. Obviously, they uh, didn't uh, progress in the playoffs. But it just for, for some athletes, it's like, look, if there's a problem, let's get there, let's get it fixed. So that's the big question. I think that's what the debate still is out, whether he's going to have that surgery. And again, reading between the lines, I suspect it would be with what's called that internal brace. Interesting. Oh, man. Doc, appreciate it as always, buddy, for for breaking everything down, and the texter just responded by saying big thanks uh, for, for answering my question there. So, again, Absolutely. you can follow Dr. Crow on Twitter right now. I'll retweet his Twitter handle <laughs> out there for everybody. Hey, stay warm and have a fantastic weekend, buddy. We appreciate the time as always. Yeah, yeah good luck on the staying warm part. Yeah, I don't no think kidding. Can do that. No kidding, man. <laughs> All right, have a good one. We'll talk with you again soon, okay? All right. Take, yep, so I'm gonna take care. Yep, you got it. There you go. There's Dr. Crow again joining us here this morning for Inside the Training Room. Chippewa Valley Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Not that far beyond the horizon, we'll see uh, boys and girls basketball as well. Family owned and operated, Toys and Ford is proud to serve the drivers of the Chippewa Valley with some of the most popular vehicles around Wisconsin and the country. They're committed to giving drivers from across the area the best in customer service with a top-notch selection of brand new vehicles to choose from, as well as an extensive inventory of pre-owned crossover SUV and trucks. Plus, with their expert finance, service, and parts centers in-house, they strive to be your one-stop dealership for all of your automotive needs. Visit them today at 1000 Chippewa Crossing Boulevard in Chippewa falls all right brandon so one thing i wanted to ask you it's sounds like somebody fell outside the studio for crying out loud uh but uh one thing i wanted to ask you i want to talk a little brewers for you but first of all your boy ben sheets going to the walk of fame you gotta be pretty pumped about that huh ben sheets you got you got a ben sheets player tee don't you i do i do um (laughs) yeah uh, yeah um Yes, I, that's. I mean, that's very well deserved um, for him to to be doing to be going in for that, and you know that's kind of the walk of fame, I guess. For you know, maybe if people are not familiar, it's it's. I think it, I, I do like the idea. It's kind of something the Brewers do for you know players that weren't necessarily. I mean, like there's not the Brewers don't have very many numbers retired, and they mm-hmm. really probably shouldn't. But um, you know, it's kind of something that allows them to kind of acknowledge people that had good careers with the team, but still, it's not to that level but still i mean if you go outside the stadium there's a there's a stretch where people that are you know acknowledged have their own little you know plaque and stuff so it's i mean it's it's a cool honor and it's and it's it's deserved for a guy that you know played very well largely during a a, a tough stretch for the team in the early to mid and even a little bit later on 2000s now they got the walk and the wall right they, they yeah. got the, which one's the most diff or most prestigious one i guess is what we got to say is that the wall i think it's the wall okay yeah, because that one's it's like different levels on there. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because one of them are one of them is um, you have to be like uh, nominated for, and the other one I think is just if you meet a certain amount of statistical criteria. That's right. Yeah, because then they vote on it. I, I think I've seen people with their ballots on online. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you, I, I'm sure you saw this on MLB.com the other day, but uh, Will Leitch had 10 key questions that will decide the NL Central. And um, we, we talked about it the other day, but you are our Brewer guy, so I wanted to get you, your thoughts. First of all, his prediction, he's got the Brewers winning uh, the NL Central with 88 wins, one game over the Cardinals. Uh, and, and the thing I wanted to ask you about, he says, is that it really feels like people are sleeping on the Brewers. They looked like a, legi- a legitimate World Series contender until last season's trade deadline, and they still have a killer rotation, a solid bullpen, and an underappreciated lineup. Would you agree with what Will said with, with those couple sentences? Um, I, Some more than others, but I think I can understand the the thought process, certainly the rotation. I mean, if the Brewers are going to, you know, get back into winning the NL central right now, the biggest advantage they have over the Cardinals is the rotation. Um, they're just, you know, a little younger and a lot more, I would say, you know, proven at a high level. So that's going to have to be important. And that is something that kind of took a little bit of a step back last year. And then for some of those guys, that's really hard just because of the level that they pitched at in 2021. But I think that bringing back, Wade Miley kind of fortifies that a little bit and you know there's still kind of the question where you know if they may move a starter just because they have a lot of depth at that spot or if they're just going to kind of ride it out so uh, the bullpen I think is interesting because there's just not a lot proven especially once you get beyond Devin Williams but there's talent there and there's guys that have been you know, kind of successful in short bursts so kind of see how that works out and the, the lineup um, you know I think the lineup you know, with with the move of Brian Anderson, who I think that was one of those moves that the more I kind of saw it, the more I kind of liked it. But you know, it's just a gate. It's just a year where they're going to need some guys to kind of bounce back a little bit. There's there's potential and possibility there, but that's one that you know does require a little bit more of the you know guys taking a step up as opposed to guys kind of playing at their career averages. So I can see it. Um, obviously, they're just going to need some things to go right and. You know, maybe a few more things to go right than it would be for the Cardinals to to win the division. You know, and, and he's got two questions for every team, and and the one that he asked for Brewers is that is that he is this offense better than everybody thinks? And he says here the general consensus is that their pitching was great, but they didn't have uh, quite enough offense to make up for some of their late season bullpen issues. But while there's some truth to that, the Brewers' offense was much more productive than you might remember. Essentially, every position in their lineup, other than catcher, was above or above average last year, going by OPS+, plus, with much of the production coming from players you wouldn't have expected, such as Rowdy Tellez and Luis Urias. What do you, what, 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 when you hear that, does that kind of like, oh, I kind of overlooked that? Or like, what are your thoughts when you hear that? No, I think that's that's pretty on the point. I just think that they're you know the thing that has hurt the Brewers at times was there wasn't necessarily that one person that was kind of leading the way with it. Um, we we know Willie Domus had a really good year as far as like homers and RBIs go, but you know maybe the slash lines otherwise with average and on base and stuff weren't exactly where you want it to be. So you know I think that you know there was. A bunch of you know, like like the number said. I mean, there was really outside of catcher, everyone was average or better, but there wasn't necessarily that person that was kind of the, the guy you you look at. And say, okay, that's that's the guy you're going to lead. You know, that's the guy that's going to lead. So, um, I, I think there's something to that, but you know, that's you know, coming into this year, that's going to be kind of interesting to see in spring training with 
what happens between you know second and third base. I think you know Reese and Brian Anderson are probably the favorites there, but you know in center field with Garrett Mitchell, you know catcher, they have to feel like they're in a better spot with William Contreras. But you know there's there's opportunities there, and there's people that can take it. It's just you know that's kind of the the big thing. It's just going to be, going to be who does. How much do you personally look at the the OPS plus because it does factor external factors like ballparks, you know, when when it comes to that number. So how much do you how much stock do you kind of put in that on base plus slugging plus statistic? Um, I mean, I'm it's I think like a lot of things when it comes to analytics, it's something that you look at, but you know, you don't necessarily subscribe to just one. You know, you, you you normally if you look at a couple different kind of you know advanced numbers and they all kind of say the same thing, then that's probably going to give you you know what you're looking for. And I think that's the case here, but you know, I, I do think that that was kind of the idea the Brewers were going into it last year with was they, you know, look, they were going to have, you know, a 2018, 2019, you know, Christian Yelich production out of anybody, but it, they figured if they were kind of average across the board or better, they'd still be a good offense. And, you know, that was pretty much the case. I mean, I think when you look at the last you know month or two and what went wrong, it was kind of a, a little bit of a lot of different things. So. Uh, the other article I wanted to ask you about, they talked about uh, some of the uh, some of the top prospects and their top tools. And as we know, the Brewers have some really good uh, younger outfielders in, in their system, and Garrett Mitchell's probably going to be the everyday starting center fielder, at least I think so right now. But the one player that they, that they list as the best hitter out of all the top 100 prospects was Sal Freelich, in which you have talked a little bit about. Do you think Sal Freelich – Will at some point this season be on the big league ball club? I do. Um, I think he's going to probably start the year at AAA for for a few different reasons, and one of those may be a reason that the the team would not um, say out loud, which is you know the opportunity to you know extend his control for another year if he's down for the first month or so. So, um, but no, that's you know his big you know primary talent is his bat on ball skills. He's you know uh, he's looked at as a guy that, you know, doesn't strike out very much. I mean, last year when he went up a couple levels, the strikeouts actually went down to the point where he was striking out less than 10% of the time at AAA, which is very hard to do. Um, but, yeah, he's a left-handed outfielder. He's he's a contact-heavy guy that can run. Um, could play center field. I think the big thing is he's trying to figure out if he's more of a center fielder or if he's more of a corner outfielder. But regardless, I think, you know, sooner than later, once the year starts barring an injury or something unforeseen like that, you know, he'll eventually make his way to Milwaukee. It just probably won't be right away. And he's kind of really explode because wasn't he a twenty twenty one draft pick? So I mean he's he's yeah. coming in hot, it seems like. Yeah, some of these outfielders that the Brewers have that are either in the majors or on the on the cusp of the majors are guys that were pretty recent draft picks, but they were college guys that moved quick. Garrett Mitchell from UCLA, Sal Freilich, uh Joy Weimer who could start the year at AAA and be up as well. So yeah, that's you know, that's always the interesting thing with the MLB draft is you know if you draft college guys versus high school guys and kind of some of the differences there and sometimes the the college guys are able to move quicker just because they're you know more familiar with the level of play you see in the minors because of playing in college so they're able to kind of acclimate quicker and you know have more success and that's kind of the case with those guys. And I know uh, I think Jackson Churio was listed as a, like a kind of an honorable mention for for speed and then. I think it was Weimer that was also mentioned for for arm strength, 
Would do you think he would potentially be the future starting right fielder if he's not moved in a trade package? I think so. I mean, he's he kind of fits more of a right fielder. He I think he has played center in the past, but you know, right's probably the place for him. I mean, he's a big guy. He's you know six five, six six. He's got a, you mentioned the the really good arm. There's some power there, and it's weird because I don't know if I've seen the comparison, but just by the by his you know height and weight and kind of his game, it, it almost look reminds me a little bit of Corey Hart. Where you know a big guy that you know earlier on in Corey Hart's career he could really run, and a, a guy that you know has power, has speed, but also has some swing and miss in his game. So, you know that's going to be you know interesting to see how that develops for him. But yeah, he's a guy that you know sooner than later, you know barring something unforeseen, will probably be in the majors with the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. It's sure. I mean. I, I don't know how they're going to get all those guys up there, but they've got quite the depth at that outfield spot. Holy moly. It's a good problem to have. And yeah. when you look at the the outfield spot as a whole for the Brewers, it, it's it's something that, you know, there there's room there because right now you've got, you know, obviously Christian Yelich, really, he's not going anywhere. You've got Jesse Winker this year, but Jesse Winker's probably, I mean, he's more of a DH than he is an outfielder. He's, you know, in a perfect world, he's playing more as a DH than an outfielder, but you know, Garrett Mitchell in center, assuming, you know, he, he breaks camp as the everyday first base or everyday center fielder, which, you know, he very well could. Um, right field, we'll kind of see. That could be Brian Anderson. That could be Tyrone Taylor to start the year. It could be, you know, someone else. But, you know, it would not surprise me if, you know, by later on this year, if all things go well, that the Brewers have, you know, at least two, you know, rookies that are logging significant time in the outfield. Is the wild card in all this, Brandon? You know, in terms of these offense, you know, we talked about are they are they better than what everybody thinks? Is the wild card in this whole thing though, the banning of the shift? Um, could be uh, because there's there's some guys that the Brewers have that you know really could benefit from that. You know, probably Rowdy Tellez. Um I know Christian Yelch's name has gotten brought up a lot with that, but you know, still I think he's still kind of a bit limiting what he can do as long as he continues to hit the ball on the ground as much as he can. And, sure that's i mean that's something he knows i mean let's face it if it's something that a lot of you know people that follow the brewers bring up i'm sure a player knows it as well mm-hmm. yeah so um it's that's going to be something interesting to keep an eye on i think with all teams in general but you know you mentioned with all these brewers young outfielders um the possibility of you know them you know maybe if those players are playing, kind of moving to a little bit more of a, you know, more aggressive on the bases kind of a team, which, you know, I would like to see, and they would actually suit some of the guys they got mm-hmm. that can, you know, that can get out there and run. And that's not to speak of a guy like, you know, Bryce Terang, who, you know, we'll see if he starts here with the big league team or not, but I, I think the expectation is going to be that he's going to be in the majors at some point in, you know, 2023 as a, as an infielder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. All right. That's going to do it for us on this episode of the Man Cave Podcast. Again, brought to you by our good friends from Ivy and Toys and Ford. Reminder, if you are not following or subscribing for free to the Man Cave Podcast, do me a favor and follow it, like it, subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform like an Apple or a Spotify. And if you have the ability on that podcasting platform, give us a positive, a positive review and a positive rating, like a five-star rating on there so other people can also find the podcast. Until next time, I'm Dan Casper. We'll talk to you again soon.